0: Well, it's an amazing story. Verse 3 calls him a paralytic. It means he didn't have the use of his limbs. We're not quite sure how extensive it was. We get a picture of this in verses 3 and 4 when we learn that he has to be carried by four friends on a mat. How long had he been in this state? Now, some people are born that way. A family friend of ours, uh, one of my best friend's little brothers, was born with spina bifida. He never knew a day in his life where he wasn't carried. He never knew a day in his life that he wasn't catharized. Some people are born like this. Other people, they know what it's like to run and jump and play. But then later in life, they have a, a tragic experience where they lose the use of their limbs. I remember being in church one Sunday evening when we got the news about John Payne. John was very active. He grew up going to the lake house, skiing. He enjoyed riding motorcycles. But his passion, his deep passion, was mountain bike riding. Uh, He had risen the ranks in youth mountain bike riding. He was a couple years older than me. He had won a couple national championships uh, for his age group. And it was June 18th or 28th or so, around that time, he was in Chattanooga at another national competition. He had been over the race, the course, uh, two times before to get used to it, but then the day of the race came. He was going down a hill 40 miles an hour, and he hit a stump. He went over the front end of his handlebars, and his head hit a tree. spine compressed, his neck broke. And he was paralyzed. It's been a wheelchair ever since. How long was this man in this situation? We're not sure. We have to imagine. But I would imagine that if he was in this situation and he had been in it for some time or even a little time, that he would have searched far and wide for help. That he would have spent all his resources to try to figure out if anyone could fix him, if anyone could get him better. And I imagine that maybe he had lost hope. It's probably one of the reasons why he's completely passive in this narrative. It's not just that he doesn't use his limbs, he doesn't use his lips either. He's brought by friends. I would imagine that he was pretty hopeless that he had given up. Let me ask you, do you know anyone like that? Do you have friends or relatives who have given up? That they have found themselves to be hopeless. They have a problem that they can't solve and no one else can either and they have just given up. Maybe it's that they get, have given up on the possibility of finding a satisfying job. Maybe it's the possi- they've given up on the possibility of financial solvency. I'm just going to be in debt. Maybe they've given up on their health. Maybe they've given up on their relationships. That's a hard place to be in when you have a friend or a family member like that. What about you? Have you been in a place in your life where you have given up? Where you have lost hope? Let me ask you a question. What do you need when you're in that place? When you've given up on yourself, when you've given up on the search, maybe when you've even given up on God, what do you need in that place? You need a friend who hasn't given up on you. This man has friends who have not given up on him. We find that they must have heard the news about Jesus that had been spreading, this miracle worker who was spoke with authority that he had the ability to cast out demons and that he even healed all kinds of diseases. And the word had spread that the blind were seeing, that the lame were leaping. And so they brought their friend to Jesus. But they're not the only ones who heard about Jesus because we find in verse 2 that when they get to Jesus' house, people are spilling out the door. So there they are, four friends with their friend on a mat, And it is jam-packed, and they can't get in. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so what they do is they figure out a way to go up onto the top of the roof. And that day, roofs were flat, and they were made out of mud and sticks and um, clay and things like that all stuck together. And they began to break up the top of that roof to dig it out. So there there is a hole in the ceiling, and they lower their friend on his mat, and set him right there at the foot of Jesus. It was risky. I mean, how is Jesus going to respond? They just ruined his roof. He, they interrupted his preaching of the word. It, it, I mean, the crowd was probably not just disturbed, they were probably perturbed. What were they going to do? It was costly. The roof, somebody's got to fix that thing. But it was necessary. It was necessary. Let me ask you a question. Do you have friends who love you enough and believe in Jesus enough that when you are drifting, that when you are on the verge of losing hope, that when you have given up, will come and take you to Jesus. Because that's what you need. You need friends like that. I'm in a, um, a group that receives updates and And Prayer requests. it's a national group uh, from graduates from my seminary. Request came this week. Things have been really dark for us lately. I'm stuck in a spiritual desert in the middle of nowhere in isolation, and we've been besieged by an overwhelming number of insurmountable trials. I'm losing hope, and my faith has been rocked more than ever before, and I've been through some hard things before. I need some kind of sign that God exists, or that He cares about us at all. Please pray. What are you going to do when you get in that place? What do you need when you get in that place? Because we all have a propensity to get into that place. Francis Schaeffer, the great missionary, apologist, and evangelist, you know, he had some dark, dark years where he paced around and wondered whether God existed. And his wife, Edith, just sat there and she prayed for him while he paced. Until he came to the place where he once again found Jesus. Do you have friends in that place? Are you. Do you have friends like that, I should say? Do you have friends like that in your life? Are you a friend like that? Are you a friend who will go to your friends and bring them to Jesus when they are in this place? Because that's what you need. You say, okay, Kyle, that's all fine and well and good, but that sounds like preacher speak to me. Take your friend to Jesus. I mean, what does that even mean? Because I live in the real world, and we have real problems, and my friends have real problems, so get real. I appreciate the point. So let me get real. What does it mean to be a friend like this and to have friends like this? Well, first, it means that you're present. It means that you're present. And guess what? If you're out of college, that doesn't come naturally. Once you get out of college, you don't make friends like this naturally. It has to be on your schedule. And so you can call it, Friday dinner, or you can call it community group, or you can call it Bible study, or you can call it, you know, uh, beer on the porch. You can call it whatever you want, but it needs to be on your schedule. Because if it's not, it won't happen. You have to be present. You not only have to be present, but you also, if your friends get into this kind of place, you have to pursue Because if they've wandered, if they've drifted, then the reality is is that oftentimes when they need you the most, they want you the least. And you have to be persistent. These men, they bring their friend to Jesus. And you also need to pray. You need to pray about how to pursue. You need to pray about how to be present. You need to pray about how to bring them to Jesus. But how do you bring them to Jesus? Well, you need to... You need to be present, you need to pursue, you need to pray, but finally, you need to proclaim the gospel. You know what the Bible says is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. And do you know why it's the power of God for salvation? Because God makes his powerful presence known in the preaching of the gospel. And so you need to proclaim the gospel to your friend. That's how you bring them to Jesus because that's how Jesus makes himself present to people in the world today. And so you need to come to your friend and you need to remind them in the midst of their hopelessness that there is hope because of a resurrection. You need to remind them in the midst of their idolatry that there is one who loves them greater than all the idols that are crushing them. You need to remind them in the midst of their guilt and their shame, which is probably what's isolating them, that Jesus' death on the cross is powerful enough to clean their conscience from guilt and shame. And this isn't just for the ministers. And this isn't just for the elders. This is for all of us. I was an intern in college at a church. And as an intern, I mainly used, worked with youth, but I also had to do various things, um, like drag coolers around and set up events. Uh, and also, I did um, elementary school kids pool parties, which was always, um, always fun and took a lot of recovery after. Well, I cleaned up the pool party, and I was driving this one uh, kid home, His name was Jean Larue IV. Jean Larue IV was actually one of the pastors on staff's uh, children. I'm driving Jean home from uh, uh, Jean. The fourth home from an event that was pretty far away from the church, and it had taken a while. So, uh, you know, his mom called to check in. How are things going? And I am pulling on to Poplar Avenue, a major thoroughfare in Memphis, and I'm in the turn lane. And she calls and she's like, "How's it going? Where are you guys?" And I said, "Oh yeah, we're just we're pulling we're uh, we're on Poplar right by the church, and we'll be there in you know two minutes." And I uh, and I hung up. And John the fourth looks at me. He's like eight years old. And he says, hey, we weren't on Poplar. That was a lie. I said, you're right, Jean. Technically, we were not on Poplar. You're right. About a minute goes by. Little Jean looks at me and he says, I'm sorry. I was being legalistic and judging you. and I need to believe the gospel that Jesus loves me. (laughs) You know, we laugh. That's an eight-year-old reminding a 21-year-old about the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, my prayer for our congregation is that we democratize and normalize the preaching of the gospel in one another's lives. That needs to happen all the time. It needs to happen from our eight-year-olds. It needs to happen to our 80-year-olds. It needs to happen across our congregation. It needs to be something that congregants, uh, that lay people say to elders, and elders say to lay people. It needs to be something that ministers say uh, say to children, and children say to ministers because we all need the gospel because we all need Jesus and so the question is is do you have friends like this this man had friends like this listen and hear me out you cannot save your friends you cannot save your relatives you cannot fix them, but you can take them to the one who can. These friends take their friend to Jesus, and there he is, laying in front of Jesus in all his vulnerability, and what happens? Verse 5 says that Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a little odd. Does that strike anyone as odd? I mean, this man clearly has a problem. What is his problem? His problem is that he's a paralytic. He doesn't have the use of his limbs. He had to be taken there by four friends and lowered down through a roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, can you imagine how he would respond? I mean, I think I would have said... "Look." Um, Jesus, thank you very much. But as you can see, I appreciate the assurance of pardon. But as you can see, I got serious problems here. And I need you to fix me. I heard you had power to fix me. What is going on? And Jesus says, I see your need. And I see your suffering. It's all over the floor. But I see underneath that need, your deeper need. And your deeper need is not to be healed of your suffering. Your deeper need is to be cured of your sin. Now, that strikes us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, as odd. You know, most of the time, uh, we don't like to talk about sin. And most of us, when we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus so that he can heal our suffering. But Jesus, he doesn't give us what we want, but he does give us what we need. And trust me, we all need this. I was at a concert some years ago, Josh Ritter. I love Josh Ritter. It was down in Hollywood. And as we walked into the show, there was a bunch of paper, white paper, just sitting there. And people were there with pens, and they told us to take the white paper and to write our burdens on them. And to make a paper airplane out of it. Well, in the middle of the show, Rain Wilson from The Office came out. Apparently, he's good friends with Josh Ritter. And he told us that we are going to release our burdens now. And, uh, and everybody folded up their paper. And there was a countdown. And then they threw their paper into the air. And everybody just felt, you just felt this release in the room. Do you know what was happening there? People were confessing their sin. And they were looking for nothing less than forgiveness. You know, the modern church has done away with a confession of sin because, you know, that's not really seeker sensitive. People won't like it that much. But, you know, if the church doesn't ritualize confession of sin and assurance of pardon, people will find somewhere else to ritualize it because deep down as patty griffin says everybody needs a little forgiveness and the reality is is that we need a lot more than a little i was uh reminded recently of a a scene in the hbo very dark like very dark gothic um Uh, new gothic uh, HBO series called True Detective. And I'm not recommending this because it is very dark and disturbing. Um, But there's this great scene where one of the characters played by Matthew McConaughey, a guy named Russ Cole, he's known for his interrogation skills and they're asking him uh, and this guy is just a wreck of a life. But he, he's really good at, at his, inter- and his interrogation skills. are really good. And they're asking him, how do you do it? And he responds, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially. And everybody's guilty. And that's it. You see, we come to Jesus and we think it's our suffering, but he says, no, it's not your suffering that you need to be cured of most. It is, it is your sin. And so, and so it's not hard for me to imagine how those friends or the paralytic would have responded. You know why? It's not hard for us to imagine. It's not hard for you to imagine. Either. You know why? Because we're in that exact same place. Most of us come in here with problems, really big problems, deep problems. For some of us, they're on the surface. For most of us, they're just below. And, and, and the right amount of factors, would if the right amount of kind of environmental factors came, we would all break down like mush. And we come in here with these problems, and what we're looking for from Jesus is we're looking for him to heal our problems, to alleviate our suffering. And what do we hear? We hear exactly what this man heard. At the the assurance of pardon, we hear, child, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. We hear during the preached word, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. We hear at the communion table with bread and wine, son daughter your sins are forgiven we hear at the benediction son daughter your sins are forgiven and how do we respond that's great jesus but i have real problems i have real suffering i mean thanks for the assurance of pardon but there's there's something else at least that's how i do And if you want an indication of why we think, or if you think your deeper problem is your suffering and not your sin, just think about this for a second. Think about how much more consumed at least I am with my suffering than I am consoled by the forgiveness that God extends to me. Think about how much more my thoughts are taken up with my suffering than I am celebrating the fact that he paid for all my offenses. And where does your mind run most of the time during the day? Jesus says, your greatest need, your greatest need is forgiveness. And he extends that. But here's the question. Can he really forgive your sin? I mean, can he really forgive your sin? Because, you know, you you can only forgive someone's sin if you're the one who's offended. I mean, think about it like this. What if we were coming to church this morning, and I happen to be walking around kind of rehearsing my sermon in, in my head, right? And I'm walking around. I do this sometimes. Sometimes it gets out of my head, and people think I'm talking to myself, which I am, but that's neither here nor there. But I'm, I'm out there, and I'm kind of in my own world, and then all of a sudden I get shaken out of it because you get rear-ended by someone. And your, your car is a mess. Like, it's a wreck. And the person gets out, and you get out, and I come over, and I look at the person, and I say, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. They'll take care of it. H- how would you respond don't worry, it's forgiven. You know, their car's fine. Gets forgiven, go up, And you're like, whoa, hold on a second. Like, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to forgive them on my behalf. Only I can forgive them because I'm the offended party, right? So Jesus, he, he says that, that he can forgive, but what are we to make of that? Well, what did they make of it, those who were sitting there that day? Well, they couldn't believe their ears, the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at what happens in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know they're right. Because every sin is ultimately an offense against God. It's either directly an offense against God, or if you offend his creatures, then you are actually doing something to that which he created and is in possession of. It's like destroying his artwork. And so every sin is a sin against God, and therefore only God can forgive sins. I mean, in in the Old Testament, priests didn't forgive sins. They could extend the forgiveness of God in his name, but they could not forgive sins. But Jesus, he is here forgiving sins. I mean, You can't do that unless the one who speaks, of course, is is God himself. Well, anyway, how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with some questions of his own, verses 8 and 9. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now that is a tricky question. Which is easier to say? I practiced this several times, and I just couldn't figure it out. So let me, let's practice. Repeat after me. Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. Rise, pick up your bed, and walk. Okay. Now, repeat after me. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Which was harder? I can't figure it out. Which is harder to say? I mean, they seem pretty much the same to me right, saying them. It's easy enough. But which is harder to do? That's the real question. Which is harder to do? And what does Jesus do? Well, it says that Jesus looks at this man and says to him, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And verse 12, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. Now, some of you have the ability to do that. Some of you have the ability to heal people. Some of you have uh, the ability. You work in medicine, and you've worked really, really hard, and you've studied. You studied in undergraduate. You studied in, in graduate school. You went to med school, and you are able to do amazing things in people's lives with a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of concentration you were able to heal people. But Jesus, he does it just by speaking. Well, that doesn't seem very hard. But, But how hard was it for Jesus to forgive sins? Well, for that, it took more than a word. See, if Jesus could have forgiven sins with a word, he would have, but he couldn't just forgive sins with a word. No, for that, it took much more Mark 10.45 says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, to heal that paralytic that day, Jesus just spoke a word, but to forgive his sins? Oh, that required that he give up his very life. See, in order for Jesus to heal the one who had no use of his limbs, Jesus had to give up use of his limbs. Jesus' limbs had to be nailed to the tree. Jesus had to pay for each and every one of his sins. It's why Jesus approached death with such fear and trepidation. Martin Luther said, no one feared death like this man. Why? Because no one knew how guilty everyone else was and the payment that he was about to have to render. And yet he drunk it. He drank the cup of wrath. He paid the price for you and for me. So which is harder? Is it harder to say, and which is easier? And which is more necessary? Well, however you answer that question, the two are related, Jesus says. In verse 10, he says that he heals the man that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says, I'm performing this work so you might know that I have the power to do another work. I'm healing him so that you might know that I can cleanse him from his sins. And therefore, if Jesus says, I have authority to issue forgiveness, then he is saying, I'm healing him that you might know that I can issue forgiveness. But if I'm issuing forgiveness, then I'm claiming to have the very authority that God has, because only God can forgive sins. So what are we to make of this man? What are we to make of this man who says and who claims that he has the authority of God. Well, I suppose there are a number of responses. We see three in this text. Uh, One could be suspicion. That's the scribes. In verses 6 and 7, they question, who does he think he is? And maybe that's some of you. Uh, You came here and you hear the claims of Christianity and you think, who do these people think they are? To claim that they know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life to claim that they know the one who can forgive sins. Who do these people think they are? Who does Jesus think that he is? But, but it's worth asking, why do we think that? Why did these scribes think that? Well, it wasn't simply because it seemed like an audacious claim. It was also a very threatening claim because they were the power brokers of religion. And Jesus is now saying, actually, no. I have authority over all religion, and therefore you have to listen to me. And maybe that's why we are suspicious of him. Maybe it's because we realize that if these claims are true, then we have to give up our perceived sense that we are the masters of our lives, the captains of our destiny, that we are the ones who get to be the brokers of religion in our lives or in the lives of other people? Suspicion. Another response is found in verse 12. And that is amazement, intrigue. It says that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And I know that's some of you here this morning. You've been investigating the claims of Christianity, and the more and more you investigate it, the more and more you are taken with the person of Jesus. And you think, you know, I talked to someone the other day, I said, Jesus, I mean, I don't know that there's ever been a more intriguing and better figure in all of history. Maybe you're like H.G. Wells, HC Wells was an author and, he, and a historian, he said, This historian simply cannot portray the progress of human, humanity honestly without giving a foremost place to the penniless preacher of Nazareth of Galilee. Though he left no impress, impress on the historical record of his time, more than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this man notice that H.G. Wells, no relation that I know, is not a Christian. He's not a Christian, but he is fascinated by Jesus. And he says you can't make sense of history without Jesus. And maybe some of you, you are fascinated, you are intrigued, you are amazed with Jesus. Because maybe you've actually started studying the historical records, and you've looked at like Josephus and Tacitus, and you've seen that outside of the Bible, there are all these kind of Testimonies to the fact that there was this miracle worker named Jesus who lived in Galilee and Jerusalem at this time, and so maybe, maybe you're like, and you, and you see that the the impact that he's had on history, and you say that there's something special about this man. But here's the question: What amazes you about Jesus? And what amazed the crowd about Jesus? Say, so, well. He said to a guy, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picked up his mat and walked. That is amazing. And that is amazing. But you know what's far more amazing than that? That Jesus said, Father, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. What's more amazing than Jesus saying, rise, pick up your mat and walk, is that Jesus refused to call down legions of angels to deliver him from the cross. That he might shed his blood for you and for me. And if that is the case, then amazement is not the most appropriate response. But the most appropriate response is found in verse 5. The most appropriate response is belief. Verse 5 says that when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, if Jesus really does have authority on earth to forgive sins, then the most proper response to him is to trust that he is able and willing to do so and that he can heal your deepest need. When I was a kid, I used to go water skiing. And, uh, and I had a hard time with water skiing uh, because the boat would start going, but I really thought that I could make myself stand up on the water, and so I struggled really hard, and I would pull really hard on the rope, and every time I would do it, I would go down, and, you know, over and over again, until I had lots of disgusting lake water in my belly, and lots of, um, lots of red spots on my skin where I'd slap the ground, and all kinds of things, and lots of uh, people in the boat annoyed because I couldn't get up, and finally, they were like, look, you need to stop struggling and you need to trust the boat. You can't get yourself up, but the boat can. And if you will trust the boat and if you will stop thinking that you have somehow the power to miraculously walk on this water, then you'll be able to ski. And I go, oh, and finally I got it. I, I stopped pulling. And I sat back, and I went right up. I think that's a picture of faith. See, some of us in here, we are struggling because we think that we can cure our need. What Jesus is calling you to this morning is to believe. To believe that his death and resurrection can heal this world and heal your deepest need and to rest in him and stop struggling. That's the response to this man. May it be so for us. Let me pray. God, I do pray that you would increase our faith, that we would believe in your provision, that we would rest, and in light of that, we would have a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.